Hey, is anybody, uh, I hope you're here for some word this morning for some theanostas, right? Theanostas is the word for God breathe. Uh, theos, God, theanostas means God breathe. All scripture is God breathe and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Theanostas, God breathe. When God breathed in the man's nostrils, he came alive. When God breathed on the disciples, they received the Holy Spirit. When God breathes on this word, it becomes alive and it becomes active. You like that dramatic pause? I know it was pretty uncomfortable, wasn't it? I just did it on purpose. I'm in that kind of mood this morning. Do you believe that, uh, that if you lean in this morning, that God has something to say to you? That God will breathe some truth into your life? You know, I, I believe that. You know, I've I got, I got to be honest with you. If, it, if I sit up here each week and it depended on my words, I wouldn't be confident at all. I have no confidence in my words, no confidence in my words whatsoever. But when I stand up here and I know that I'm, that I'm, I'm talking about God's word, the anastas, the God-breathed words of our Father, of our Creator, you know, I have confidence in that. You know, it's alive and active. It's like, it's like real, right? It's been around for thousands and thousands of years. And, and I'm confident that if you lean into it, that, you will, that you'll hear from God this morning. I, I want to begin with the passage um, from... Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. Now, as the chapter opens up, Jesus is in the wilderness just southeast of the Sea of Galilee, an area called the Decapolis, means 10 cities. I have a, a map you can look at here. You know, so he's in the Decapolis. He's over here at the bottom there in the wilderness area. And Jesus, he's teaching the people, and he keeps teaching the people. And, and after three days, a very large crowd has gathered, a crowd of over 4,000 people have gathered to hear him out on the wilderness. And, and we read these words, Jesus says, as he looks at this crowd, he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. And some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread in this desolate place to fill these people? Now, does that response sound familiar to you? It's pretty much the exact same thing that happened just a few weeks earlier when there was a multitude of 5,000 people. And Jesus said, hey, go ahead and feed them. And they said, hey, we don't have enough money to buy the bread to feed all these people. And then Jesus multiplied the food, fed 5,000 plus people, and he had 12 basketfuls left over. And so then in Mark chapter 8, Jesus does this thing, right? He, he takes seven loaves of bread and a, and a few small fish, and he demonstrates his power over creation by multiplying that bread and feeding 4,000 people. Now they have seven baskets left over. And, and after this, they, they get into the boat again, and they, they, and they, sail, they get, get into the boat. They sail across the Sea of Galilee to the, to the northwest part near Magdala, and while Jesus is there, some Pharisees come and they, argue, they start arguing with him. We don't know what the argument was about, but we know they were testing Jesus. And they said to Jesus, hey, show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus let out a big sigh. He couldn't believe it. And he said, why does this generation demand a sign? I assure you, no sign will be given to this generation. 
And then they get in the boat again, and they leave Magdala. They go across to the, the north uh, east corner to Bethsaida, which happens to be the hometown of Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Philip. It's a fishing town. Uh, Bethsaida actually means a uh, house of fish. And we read this. Here's the text I want us to look at as we begin this morning. Then they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look to me like trees walking around. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and he saw distinctly. He was cured and could see everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now, now this is a, it, it's a very unique miracle. In fact, it's the only two-step miracle of Jesus that we find in all the scriptures. The first thing Jesus does is he, he spits on this guy's eyes. Now, what do you think is going through this guy's mind right now? He's, he, he's not deaf, he's blind. Okay? You know, he, he, seriously, he heard it, right? Can you spit much without doing something like that? All right? And, and, and then, then he touches the guy's eyes, and he's able to see, but not real clearly. It's not very clear. It, people look like trees walking around, which obviously implies he wasn't born blind, or else he wouldn't know what, what trees look like. And I'm convinced that Jesus did this healing in two steps very intentionally. Like, he didn't expect the first touch to work, right? Or else he wouldn't ask the question, do you, do you see anything? I mean, in every other miracle, Jesus never asked a question like that. He never said, hey, is the leprosy gone? Are you able to walk on those legs? Lazarus, are you alive? Are those, are those blind eyes open? No. It, it was very intentional. And then the second step, he put his hands on the guy's eyes, and he could see everything distinctly and clearly. And he doesn't even bother to ask him if he could see, did he? Why? Because he already knew he could. So, so why here in Bethsaida, the hometown of a lot of his disciples, and at this moment, towards the beginning of his third year of ministry, does Jesus perform a miracle in two steps? Text doesn't tell us, right? And there's a lot of speculation out there why Jesus did this. And uh, I know because I, I, I read a lot of the people, what they're theorizing about this. And, and uh, yeah, for some reason, I was really drawn to this text this week. I probably spent way too much time diving right in here. But I think it's important, and I think that God has a reason for it. And as I kept thinking and studying on it, here's what I think is going on. And remember, as we learned back in 2018 in our series, Understanding of the Bible, when you're trying to understand a passage of Scripture, when you're interpreting the Bible, we have to remember who the king is. And when it comes to understanding the Bible, who's the king? Context is king, right? Context, like what's going on before the verse, what's going on after the verse can help you understand that passage. Context matters. Let me read a sentence to you. It'll kind of show you what I mean. Since it was raining so hard, I left my wife in the car and went into the store by myself, right? Now, suppose you just take those four words, I left my wife. <laughs> and you're like, what happened? Is there a divorce? 
I knew that pastor wasn't what he said he was. I knew he was going to fall, right? I mean, you know, what does it mean? Well, context shows you, right, what goes on before and after. That's what I mean when I say context is king. You just can't always pull a verse out and understand what it's saying. And so what is the context of this two-step miracle in Mark's gospel? And, and by the way, in just a few weeks, we're going to begin our, our brand new series, uh, The Gospel of Mark, The Life and Ministry of Jesus, uh, starting at chapter 1 all the way through chapter 16, and no clue how long that one will go. But back to the context of this two-step miracle. What's going on before, right? Jesus, he, he, he feeds the 4,000. He argues with the Pharisees who just will not believe in who he is. And then, then Jesus hops in the boat with his guys to sail to Bethsaida. And so what, what, what happens in the boat ride? Here's what we read. They've forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he commanded them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And what's he talking about? What, what is the yeast of the Pharisees? What is the yeast of Herod, right? He's not talking about baking, right? He's not talking about that. You know what? I think in the context, it's the use of unbelief, right? Uh, be, beware of, of stubborn unbelief. Uh, beware of seeing things and, and refusing to, to believe. He continues, Mark does, they were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing that you do not have any bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? Do you have eyes? And do not see? Do you have ears and do not hear? And, and, and do you not remember? In, in other words, how come you're not getting it? <laughs> you've seen all the things that I've done. You, you've heard all the things that I've said. And, and here you are in the boat with God in the flesh, with the bread of life, and you're arguing about you don't have enough bread. How come you don't understand who I am? Then he goes on. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of bread did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? Can't you see? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I'm about? Don't you know what I can do. And, and, and so the context, that happens, that's the context before the two-step miracle, right? The failure of his disciples to have eyes to see and ears to hear who Jesus really is. They see some, right? They see some, but it's not clear. And the way Jesus looks like a tree walking around. Now, 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 what happens right after the miracle? Jesus' disciples went on, right, very next verse, went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and so others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody. And here's the deal. Here's what I think. I think this two-step miracle, it's a, it's a picture, it's, a, it's an illustration of the disciples' eyes being open and beginning to see Jesus for who he really is, you know, no longer seeing him as a tree walking around, but seeing him as the living God. I, I think 
the guy fully blind, I think he represents the Pharisees who were, who, they were so blinded by their unbelief they could never see. And, and, and I think the partial sight of the guy represents the disciples kind of seeing Jesus, but not really seeing Jesus. And I think the guys with his eyes wide open represents his disciples finally getting it and seeing Jesus for who he is. Some say, some see you as this. Some see you as this, Jesus. But we see you as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of the living God. Now, do you think the blind guy was satisfied with his, his partial healing? Like, just, I don't think so. And I don't think Jesus was satisfied with the partial sight either. Or I don't think he was satisfied to a much greater extent with his disciples not seeing clearly not having 2020 vision, not having visual acuity. Pray with me. Uh, God, we love you. Lord, we pray that your Theanostas word will reign on this place today. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, enable me to speak the words you want me to speak in the way that you want me to speak it. Fill this place with you, Holy Spirit, move. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to week five of our series, 2020 Vision. It's a series about having visual acuity, about seeing things clearly, and, and uh, six of the most important areas of your life, right? So far, we talked about seeing Jesus for who he really is. We talked about seeing the church as the hope of the world. We talked about seeing yourself not through the eyes of unaccepted parents, sexual culture, or comparison, but seeing yourself through the eyes of the love of the Father. We talked about seeing your relationships as an opportunity, as an opportunity to experience community, to develop the humble servant attitude of Christ, an opportunity to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, and an opportunity to show the world that you are as disciples. Wow, I did not know that relationships could look like that. I didn't know a marriage could look like that. I didn't know a family could be like that. Is that how they're supposed to be? And so we've been talking about this since January the 19th, and I just have to ask, how is your visual acuity? Are you seeing things any clearer? Understand, seeing these four things clearer, improving your vision in regards to them, will have a dramatic and positive impact in your life. Do you believe that? Do you have eyes to see? Or are you blind to the importance of these things, like the guy in Bethsaida, before he met Jesus? Or are you living in, in just the first step of the miracle, seeing but not really seeing? And, and, and here, here's what I'm afraid of. And my fear, it's not just for you, it's for me as well. I, I fear that, that we may settle and be content with partial seeing. Seeing but settling for a blurry vision. Like seeing Jesus, but yeah, I, I, I see that he is the, I, I kind of see he's the creator and the Lord and sovereign of the universe and the king of kings, but it's kind of blurry because I don't really walk and live my life in the confidence that should give me. Yeah, I kind of see, I kind of see that the church is the hope of the world, but it still looks like trees walking around and it's not that important or valuable to me. 
Yeah, I, I kind of see that I should see myself through the eyes of the Father's love, but it, I, I'm, it's still distorted. It still looks like trees because I'm allowing culture and people and things and my sin and my failures to define me. Seeing but not really seeing clearly. We cannot settle for partial sight. Don't settle for glory vision. Don't settle for kindness seeing. Well, I kind of sort of think Jesus is Lord of all. And he's coming back to split the sky. And everything's okay because he rose from the dead. I kind of... Don't settle for partial seeing. Have you, are you, and are you willing to open your eyes? And I know I spent a lot of time talking about that. But, but it, if all we do is talk and listen and don't live out, then what does it really matter, right? Like, I, I'm so not kidding that if you'll see Jesus who he is, it'll help change you. Why do we have to worry? What do you got to worry about with Jesus on the throne? You know, and if you see the church as a hope of the world, that you're part of something that's the most important thing on the face of the planet, changing people's forever. And if you really see yourself through God's eyes, you'll begin to see how beautiful and wonderful and awesome and what a masterpiece you are and that you've been fearfully and wonderfully made. And if you see your relationship, hey, I can serve there and have the attitude of Christ. I can grow the fruit of the Spirit. I can show the world what it looks like, what relationships supposed to look like. Sure, we'll fall short, but we can do better. That was a long intro to my sermon. But maybe the most important thing that I'll say. This one I want to talk about seeing your work as a mission. And I'm really seeing it as a place to make a living, provide for your family, or a stepping stone to something bigger and better and greater. And not necessarily seeing work as an unpleasant thing that you have to do. Not seeing this work as something you have to do so that someday you don't have to do it <laughs> and retire. I, I, I want to show you a video of a guy who had a pretty great job, has a pretty great job, and, and he's, he hadn't had the job very long. He's had the job for about like two years. In that two years' time, he's become well-known. He's made a lot of money, and I think a lot more money's coming this guy's way. And, and I came across a video of him talking about his approach to his job and how he sees his job as a mission. Um, his name is Patrick Mahomes, and he uh, was the quarterback for the Super Bowl um, champions, Chiefs. Check this out. Amen. Amen. He's a hard guy not to like, and I'm a Patriot fan, right? But I got to tell you, he's hard not to root for, and so is the owner, CEO, uh, Clark Hunt, who in interviewed before the NFC Championship game said, you know, my identity is in my faith in Christ. And, and, and what, they, what the Chiefs do, no other NFL team does this. I, I, I found this out that if there's a game at noon at Airhead Stadium in the pavilion, they provide a worship and chapel service with a message so that those who go to the game and miss their church service can have church at 10 a.m. before they go in and watch the football game. That is nuts. That is crazy. And that is having visual acuity when it comes to your work, right? Um, 
Now, there's just two points in your notes this morning. It matters and it's possible. And the first point is it matters that you see your work as a mission. And the second point is it's possible to live out your work with a mission focus. It matters. It matters. And regardless of your work may be, what your work may be. You know, I found a really awesome website called theologyofwork.org, which I'll do a whole lot more researching on it. Um, but it's about the theology of work and how work matters and how we need to equip each other, equip people in church to go out in their workforce and really make a difference regardless of what that work is. And I came across this video of a lady named Michelle. Check this out. The workplace is one of the places, the place where believers and unbelievers spend a lot of time together. You know, uh, most people will spend about 100,000 hours in their lifetime working, more or less. That's a, that's a lot of time. And it gives a lot of opportunity to rub shoulders with people. And, and the workplace, you know, um, there's a mission that God wants to accomplish. And it, it's really a threefold mission. I, I want to show you a picture here or something. Tell me if you know what this is. It's a three-legged stool, right? And, and each leg's important, right? If, if you want to stay seated, right? If that chair is going to fulfill its purpose, every, every leg of that stool is important. And, and, and God has really placed on us a, a threefold mission that we can take into our workplace. And I, I just want to tell you what those are. And, and, you can, and I want you to marinate on them. Some you know, some you're very familiar with. And, um, but I think uh, like the third leg I'm going to talk about is maybe one we forget sometimes. And obviously, one leg of, of the stool would be the Great Commission, right? And that's in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, where, where, where Jesus calls us to go and to, to make disciples, right? There's a lost world out there, and, and we're to go, and we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, another leg of our mission, so we have the Great Commission, we have also what's known as the Great Commandment, Right? And what, the, what is the great commandment? We know what that is, right? Is to, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to what? To love our neighbor. To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And the third leg is actually the first calling that God has ever placed on mankind. It, it, it actually came long before the fall and before there was even a need for redemption. It's the creation mandate. Uh, some people refer to it if you go Google around, uh, the cultural mandate. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over everything, living creature that moves on the ground. Then the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And so the the Great Commission, right, of, of that stool emphasizes the importance of Christians being involved in sharing their faith and making disciples. And wherever you work, where you go to school, I just ask you, are there anybody that needs Jesus, right? Anybody that doesn't know him, anybody that has not found salvation in him, right? Then God would hope that that would be on your mind. The great commandment emphasizes the importance of Christians actively demonstrating their love for other people. 
where you work, where you go to school, do you think there's anybody that could use some love, right? Some real love, some agape love, right? You know, have people love them, not with a string attached to it, but love them just to love them, right? That's part of what God wants you and, you and I to take to our work, right? That we're going to love those there. We're going to go through the mindset, how can I love the people that God has placed in my circle of influence? The creation mandate emphasizes that God calls and commands us to fill the earth with his image and to work, cultivate, and create things that are both good and that glorify him. Creation mandate emphasizes that God calls and commands us to fill the earth with his image and to work, cultivate, and create things that are, that are both good and glorify him. In the beginning, God's creation was formless, empty, and dark. Then God said, let there be life. In other words, God chose to create the universe by bringing order out of chaos. In like manner, all human creative activity mirrors that same process. Whether it's designing a new building, uh, making bread from grain, developing medicine, writing a computer program, painting a picture. All of it involves bringing structure and order to raw, chaotic materials for the benefit of humans and for the glory of God. And unlike God, you know, God creates out of nothing. We take what God has created, we take our talents and abilities, and we make something good from it. What it is, see, the creation mandate is that we continue making things and doing things that spread God's image and that are good. When you go to work, you do something, you finish that report, you look at it, and so-and-so, Sally finished her report and saw that it was good. You know, mom cleaned the kitchen and saw that it was good. The server brought out the food to them and saw that it was good, right? We're, we're creating things that are good, right? That is part of the creation mandate, right? You know, people go out and they clean, you know, the, the garbage guys, right? They go out and take the garbage from the curb so we don't have to deal with it. And we say, hey, that is good, right? We wouldn't have to deal with it ourselves. And so when we go to work, right? Our threefold mission, right, is the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, and then you go to work, you, you, you're cre- all you're creating something, right? And no matter what you're doing, you're doing something, and you want to continue, and I want you to see that, right? The haircut, right? That's good, right? Hopefully, <laughs> right? We all had a bad haircut maybe once or twice, but uh, the whole point I'm trying to make is that part of your job, part of your mission is not just and if all we emphasize, well, you got to go to work because you got to share Christ, we're missing something. We're missing the part that God wants to go to work to make that work better, make the workplace better, make that environment better, make that product better, make that good. And I make, hope I'm making sense, right? I think we've kind of, I know I've left that out until I did studying this week. Like, whoa, that's crazy. I, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. And it's like in the Bible. So, so that, that's your mission when you go to work. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're a CEO, right, uh, and own an NFL team or if you're a hairdresser, right, you can still do that mission where you go to work. You can actually even be um, an intel uh, uh, worker at a government, um, as this guy right here would like to share with you. Amen. Amen. That's some some good stuff. And here's what we're going to do. This has just now become a two-part message. Which is good for me. That makes this week easier, right? 
because I'm going to tell you next week how it's possible to live this out. I'm using an example from Scripture. And, and, uh, but I, I do want to, I still got time left, and I'm not going to yield my time back to nobody. <laughs> uh, but you go to the work. You know, I, I found a stack this week um, that just really was kind of crazy. That 54% of 15 and up in our country never or seldom go to church. I mean, you do the math, how many, and I, I went on, Googled how that age group and did the math, and you're talking about 150 million people in our country, 54%, age 15 and up, never or seldom go to church, right? Um, and, and I'll tell you, I said it before, but it's so true, you know, um, you guys in the workplace are on the front lines um, every day. And every day is an opportunity. Every day. Uh, there's people there that God wants you to love, right? You know, and you don't know, maybe you know what they're going through, maybe they're not, but you want to become the kind of person, right, that people come to and, and ask you for prayer. You know, and Steve did that short video, um, but I, I know he's someone that people at work came to. I, I was at you know, his retirement sermon. I, I know how many people invited. And when people had deep problems, they knew that here's someone I can go to that has compassion and that will pray for me and will care for me, right? And, and if those people are not ever going to walk through church and those numbers are increasingly getting higher and higher, the only way it's going to happen is if you and I, who are in the workplace, right, take Jesus with us and students that applies to the school, right? Because you know, you know people aren't Christians, right? You know? And, and, and don't and we can't whine about a tough work environment. We can't whine about how hard school is or how mean our bus driver is. Because next week we're going to look at Daniel and his work environment. And I guarantee that Babylon was a more hostile work environment than anyone in this room have ever experienced. And he seemed to be able to pull it off, right? And so let's stop our whining, you know, and, and just get busy and, and lean into God. Um, and remember the threefold purpose, right? You're not going there just like, oh, I'm going to work to win people to Jesus. Well, yeah, you are. But you're also going there to love people. Yeah, you are. But don't forget, you're going there to create. To be part of God's creative process to make things that are good. And you know what? That lady, you know, Michelle could look back at that haircut and say, you know, that's good. I'm doing what God made me to do. I'm continuing the creative mandate that God gave when he created the earth. Amen? All right. I love you guys. I, I really do. Don't settle. Don't settle for everything looking like trees, right? You know, you know, don't settle for partial vision, right? You, you want to have clear vision of who Jesus is, of what the church is, of what relationships can do, and of who you are, right? And, uh, you know, one way to get a vision of who you are is communion, right? Because how do you know the value of something, right? by how much somebody's willing to pay for it, right? And there's some crazy things we've all seen on the internet where someone takes an old baseball card, a Babe Ruth rookie card, and pays millions of dollars for it like it's a piece of paper, you know? Um, yet, someone who bought it says it has that value. Well, you may not feel valuable, but I'm here to tell you that, you know, that you were bought, bought not with gold or silver, Right? You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus. That you have that much value. And the people you work with, 
people you go to school with, those who love Jesus, those who don't, those who hate Jesus, those who want nothing to do with Jesus, those who irritate you, right? Jesus died for them as well because he sees their value. And every week we take communion at Maple Grove. It's off to the side. It's open to anybody who wants to remember who Jesus is and remember the sacrifice that he made. You'll find a cracker in a cup. But if, you're, if you want to know what you're worth, you know, God says, and, and, and God made you, God gets to define you, and God gets to determine your, your worth, and God says that you, despite your falls and failures, despite what you think of yourself, God says you're so valuable that the only thing I could find worth enough to pay for you was the death of my son. That's how much you matter to him. Would you stand? I'm going to pray. And I do want you guys to know that after church every week, I forget to mention it because I forget so many things, but that wall there is our prayer wall, and one of our elders will be there after church every week. Even if I don't say it, they'll be there. I'm like batting like 30% on trying to say this new thing every week, right? But I got it today. But if you have a prayer need and you're struggling, we don't want you to walk out here without somebody praying for you, Right? And they will be here. You, know, you don't have to come up front and tell everybody what's going on. You go over there after church and just say, hey, would you, would you pray for me? Um, if it's something you don't really want to share the details, you just want prayer, you don't have to give the details. But we believe that prayer matters, that prayer makes a difference, that prayer uh, reaches God's ear. So that's available each week as well. Uh, God, we love you. We just thank you for this opportunity, God, to, to be here in this place with you. I thank you for all these workers, God, who, God, just help them this week to go out and just create some good stuff, God, whatever they do. Help them to find pleasure in their work and to know that whatever it is, it doesn't even matter what it is. God, when they do a good job, when they create something, that it puts a smile on your face. And God, we thank you that even in the trials and difficulties of this life, uh, like Daniel's friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Amendigo found out that whatever we go through, Lord, we can take confidence that there's always another in the fire with us, God. Lord, we need you, and we thank you for always being there. In Jesus' name, amen.